So we are in the season of Lent. And we continue this march towards the cross of Good Friday and the resurrection of Easter. And it is a time where we're talking about the idea of enough, Lent being a season of plenty. Before we get started, I just want to say a pair of things. The first is a word of gratitude. I am so proud to be the pastor of a church that makes space for our young people like you did last week on our Youth Sunday. I was deeply moved by the testimonies, by the preaching, by the worship, by the music, by their vision for who we are as a church on the theme is enough is enough. And I'm grateful for you making space to them because it says to that youth program that we care as much about our future rooted in their excellence as we do in the greatness of our history and our past. So from me to you, thank you for making space for them. The other thing that's true about the season of Lent is that it's an opportunity for us to be shaped in God's goodness and grace, and we'll get to the themes of that, but I want to say that there are often people who come into this experience who say, I really don't need to be more challenged over the next 40 days in my story. Life is enough. The worry of my family, of my soul, of my heart is sufficient, and to you I say, Easter is enough. Maybe you come to the story worried about family, about friends, about children, about patterns of addiction, about loss of job, of loss of income. Maybe you've lost dear friends and partners in ministry suddenly. Easter is enough because it is the symbol for us as the Christian church that God's story is made complete, not in the suffering of Jesus on the cross, not in the struggles of the Christian disciple over the season of Lent, but in the empty tomb at Easter. Now that said, Lent, for many of us, comes as an opportunity for us to be formed in such a way as to add some depth and substance to the power of Easter, which is sufficient. Two weeks ago, when I started this series on Enough, I talked about things you might try on in Lent. Just a a, a quick little pattern in review. For many, Lent is a time of fasting, of giving something up that God might speak to you. It is an opportunity to set something down that God might speak to you in a new way. Giving up, maybe it's a a vice or or a, a pattern of use in your life. Something that you just need to set aside for 40 days that God might know you and you might know God better. But the inverse is true. If we're setting things down in Lent, Lent is also a season where we might pick something up. Taking on a new opportunity, a a commitment to a pattern of worship and being present in the work of God, a pattern of prayer, of study of God's word or resources beyond the Bible. Whatever it is, you might try something on new in the weeks to come. To use what's left of the month of March and indeed our march towards Easter as a chance for God to shape you. That Lent would be a time for you to ask good questions. Good questions of yourself, good questions of your neighbor, good questions of your God. To use this as a transformative time to explore who God is and who you are in God's grace. But the flip side of that one is that you have to be willing to embrace tough answers to grow in Lent. When the answer is not now, not yet, not ever. When the prayers that come out or of us return with a sense of that wasn't the answer I scripted or expected. When our expectations of others and how they live their lives and who they are come back to us either empty or confusing. We have to learn to embrace tough answers. And we have to learn the pattern of enough. And so this series, as we've been working through it, is a chance for us to talk about these different ways of unpacking a real vague word about completion, 
like enough. And each week we've got these witty little turns of phrase that involve the word enough. We started with, am I old enough to know better? Old enough to know better. Last week the youth talked about enough is enough. This week we talk about fair enough. Fair enough is one of those phrases that we use, again, to demonstrate a sense of adequacy. It's sufficient. But I have to tell you, the implication that I have in mind is the subtleness to fair enough. When fair enough comes as a reply to someone who has unpacked their story, their journey, their expectations, and you want to let them know they have been heard, but that you may not agree completely. Or someone has captivated your time and energy and told you all about their politics or their problems, and the only thing that you can say is, hmm, fair enough. You've been heard, but I'm not all the way there with you. In some ways, fair enough, while it talks about being sufficient and adequate, it is in fact the unspoken part said out loud. It reveals a part of us that kind of shrugs off the world's experience to say, yes, I've heard, I've heard it in its completion, but it is water off my back. It is not something that has sufficient value for me. I hear you, yes, but I'm unimpressed. And the deep fear of the Christian experience is that God looks at our life pattern, our sacrifice, our struggle, our triumphs, and our failures, and simply shrugs shoulders and says, eh, fair enough. I don't buy into that pattern as to who God is. Not a God who settles, but a God who embraces. A God with more grace and love that we cannot deeply measure or know. God doesn't leave us in that shrugged, unspoken part of, eh, child of God, fair enough. How do we know this to be true? Well, this morning I want to wander around in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It only appears in the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, and John tell the story of Jesus' teaching ministry in a different way, but it's a trio of parables that start with the following criticism. People on the outside edge of the Jesus experience do not notice that the healings that have taken place, the blind that see, the deaf that hear, the lame that walk, the hungry that are fed, those who are prison to their sin or literally prison in life have been set free. No, what they look at when they see Jesus is this. This man eats with sinners and welcomes them. How dare he? So that's what Luke 15 starts with, a criticism about Jesus' pattern of companionship and his life. And he brings to the table three stories about worth and sufficiency, the value that things take on in the building of the kingdom of heaven. The first is a story about sheep, that there are a hundred sheep and one goes missing. And the shepherd notices, and the shepherd leaves the 99 in the safety of other shepherds, goes out, finds and gathers that sheep, brings it back to the fold, and there is rejoicing. The shepherd says, party with me, friends, for the one that was lost has been found and restored. And Jesus says, so it is in the kingdom of heaven when one sinner is redeemed. Now, mathematicians in the crowd would know that's a scale of 1 to 100. The 1% has been found and redeemed. It is cared for by God's grace and God's mercy. And the stakes elevate in Jesus' story. 
Then he says, there's a woman with 10 gold coins. One goes missing. And so she spends the night turning her home over, looking for that lost coin. And when she finds that coin, even in the middle of the night, she brings together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I found that which was lost. And she throws a party for them. So it will be when one sinner is redeemed in the kingdom of heaven. The 10%. A value of one in ten. As a brief aside, here we are in Women's History Month, and I want to tell you that that story alone would have burnt the nostril hairs of the critics around Jesus. To have the example in that story of one of sacred worth and one of holding on to God's grace, wisdom, and purpose being rooted in a woman with sufficient and substantial means of her own, having 10 gold coins, who doesn't call to her a husband, a son, an uncle, any male figure to recover that coin, but instead can do it herself and then invites her friends to a party, itself is revolutionary thinking. Jesus is a bit of a pot stirrer. And then one more story where the stakes get high and yet they somehow come so close to home. A father has two sons. And the younger son says, I wish you were dead. That's not actually what Luke says, but it's what's implied. He says, Father, give me the inheritance that I am due upon your passing. And so that grieved father splits up his resources and gives that young boy half of what he has as an inheritance, even though he is still amongst the living, and that boy goes forward and what? Squanders it. Spends it on prostitutes, loose living, drugs, addiction, patterns of life that just break the heart as a parent, looking at our children and knowing there is a better way to go, kid. And yet, then a famine hits. When he went from having everything and feeling like he was sufficient, it is then that he runs out of resources and that one of two sons is left with a stark reality. He has run out of food, and he has run out of money, and he is serving another by feeding unclean pigs. And he looks at the food that he gives to those pigs and says, my father's servants eat better than these pigs do, and yet I'm hungry for what they have. And that second son begins to rehearse an opportunity. Maybe if I'm enough, maybe if my apology is enough, My dad will take me on as a hired hand. And so he practices. He practices. He practices in the foreign land. He practices on his way home. Father, I have sinned against you and against God. Forgive me. Father, I've sinned against you and against God. Forgive me. It's on his lips and on his tongue. He's ready to say it to his dad. And what happens? The father sees him from the porch, runs to him, embraces him before he ever gets that phrase out. Says, my son is home. Bring rings. Bring the robe. Bring sandals. Kill the fattened calf. And we are going to have a party. For my son, who was lost, has been found. This man eats with sinners and welcomes them. We can't understand that pattern, that life, that love. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. And so Jesus, in all of his wisdom, gives a counterpoint example to his own critics, and he tells them the rest of the story, and the words will be on the screen. 
Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, the servant replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go into the house, so his father went out and pled with him. But the son answered the father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is what the story of the prodigal son tells us. It talks about an abundant father's love that is made complete in not shrugging off the experience of his most vulnerable child as you've come home, well, fair enough. You screwed up. There's a spot for you in the barn. There's a spot at the back of the line. No, this is a father who restores that which is lost and is found. This man eats with sinners and welcomes them. Yes, why? Because God's love is not only sufficient, it is abundant. And God's satisfaction with us outraces our satisfaction with others. Everyone for whom their experience we point at objectively or subjectively and we say, you're not doing enough, God shows up with robes and rings and sandals, with rejoicing, because that which is lost has been found. That is the pattern of spiritual equity. And the stakes of equity are high, and they're difficult for us to comprehend. Because for us, we would love things to be fair. But in our family, when we were raising our kids, we had a sentence that we used again and again. Fair is not equal. Because in our house, it was about quantity. It was about Jackson has five chicken nuggets, and I have four chicken nuggets. Never mind the fact that your chicken nuggets are bigger than his chicken nuggets. He got the slightly taller red glass, and I got that big, wide, blue glass. Fair's not equal. Fair is meeting your need as we've identified it together to know that you are never going to go without, that sufficiency will be met there. The stakes of equity in God's scale go beyond that. It's not just saying fair is not equal. It is about this sense that God is sufficient and abundant. To God, your value is seen through the work of Jesus on the cross. We're coming up on a pattern when we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday. Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. The crowds cry out, and the religious authorities say, Silence the crowds, lest they cause a rebellion. 
Jesus' answer to that criticism is, if the people were silent, the stones would cry out. One of the things I love is the places where God has sent stones to cry out, to remind me of patterns of life, of theologies that are beyond me that I need to hear and see in a different way when I'm not hearing them in the voices of the people of God. And so singing a U2 song in worship speaks to me. Yes, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, but the part of that song that I find most compelling is something that is so subtle as Bono writes that I think we miss it. He says, you took on the cross of shame And then the next little line before it hands off to the chorus is, and I still believed it. And I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We are so quick to believe in our cross of shame. We are so quick to believe that we are not worthy of God's goodness and the power of the cross. We are so quick to diminish our own place in God's kingdom. And when we are not, perhaps we need to be reminded of that responsibility. That even when we think we've done enough, it is still insufficient in the grand economy of God's work. We all need the work of Good Friday. We all need the empty tomb of Easter Sunday. We all need to realize that God is sufficient. See, the criticism of Jesus that brings us to these stories, these fair enough stories, is about building the kingdom of heaven. It's about inviting people into a new and full relationship, not just redeeming them for the end of their life, not just helping them to know the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow or the pie in the sky that awaits in the here and the sweet by and by. It is about building a kingdom of God that we can see in our midst. But it only happens for Jesus and it only happens for us when we can see the world as God does to realize the value of the stranger and the neighbor, to call to the lost, to value the least, to know that whether it be one in a hundred, one in ten, one out of two, those we do not see, those we have lost, are welcome here and are valuable to God. And when the criticism of the world is that church includes sinners and welcomes them, all the better for it. When the criticism of the world is, those are a people who love people that I do not. That's the work of Jesus. Not only are we called to embrace the lost, we are called to celebrate and to notice the small. Celebrate with me. I had a hundred sheep and 99 might have been enough, but I found the one I was missing. Celebrate with me. Even though you might feel that nine coins was enough, I found the one that I'd lost, and it matters to me. Celebrate with me. Yes, I have another son who treats me well, who treats me better, who is the apple of my eye, and who has always been faithful, but the one that I thought that was lost to me, the one that you thought wasn't worth the time or the effort, he's come home. That's the pattern of God's grace and redemption. When we learn to see and to celebrate those innocuous moments that seem of such little significance, celebrate with me because the one who was lost, I thought, to me and to another has been restored. Now, I want to say one thing. You might say, I'm the one sheep, Pastor. I'm the one coin. 
I've been lost and I felt like nobody noticed. I desperately need to know that you, this church, or your God are on the hunt for me and would celebrate my restoration. And that's the work we do here. Do we do it perfect every time? No. But we're not perfect. Our God is. But that is the business of the life of faith. Bringing together the very kingdom of God that we might know our redemption and restoration. Now, in the midst of all of this conversation about fair enough, there's an important pattern of life that I don't want to miss the chance to address. And that's what happens when life feels unfair. Because oftentimes that's not the part that goes unspoken. We are quick to point out the place in our life where we feel like all that we've done hasn't added up to enough. Or all of the things that have victimized us have put us where we are. What do we do when life feels unfair? When it truly is unjust? A part of the work of the church is to meet people in that place and not to dissuade them of that, but to tell them a story about a God who is meeting them in the midst of that. To walk the path with those who feel like life is unfair or stacked against them. Not to dissuade them of that place, but to help them into a pattern of sufficiency, enough, and abundance. Because it's not enough for us to be able to say, God is so good, God's been good to me, if it comes at the expense of the suffering of another. Yes, there are inequities, there are patterns in our life that are deeply unfair. And so as we take on this God perspective, as we see the world as redeemed, it is a reminder to us that we're not just going to stay in Lent in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of suffering, that we go back to where we started. That we all need the redemption of Easter to reset those great scales of life. Because we come at the experience to say when life feels out of balance and unfair and it's not enough to hear some father figure say, well, fair's not always equal. It's an opportunity for us to realize that the empty tomb eliminates that whole system. That Christ returning in glory and knowing us as surely as he knows Mary and calling us by name is an opportunity for us to move in and through the weeks ahead expecting to encounter a God who's present in your story and mine. Yes, there are times when life feels unfair. But that's not the end of the story. It's not where we ought to feel mired, rooted, or stuck. We follow a God who's never going to let the unfair situation of one lost sheep, one lost coin, one lost son be simply, hmm, fair enough. We follow a God who desperately searches, who looks and looks and looks until God finds exactly what God's been looking for. I give thanks to a God of that kind of abundance and grace. I long to see that God's face every more each day. Would you join me in a moment of prayer?